This is the Journal of American History podcast for June 2010. Hello, this is Ed Linenthal, editor of the JH, welcoming you to our seventh podcast. In this program, we speak with Professor Terry Snyder, professor of American Studies at California State University Fullerton and author of a forthcoming article in the JH, Suicide, Slavery, and Memory in North America. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Terry, what led you to write about this topic? Well, I think like many scholars, this uh, was a project that came to me while I was working on my first book. And I, in my first book, I read pretty deeply in county court records of Virginia and was mostly immersed in the 17th century. As I was reading through those records, I came across a spate of suicides by indentured servants, very young, mostly men, uh, in the middle decades of the 17th century. And, and meanwhile, reading in the legislative records for Virginia, I came across petitions from slave owners who were seeking compensation for their slaves who they had claimed had killed themselves. And as well in local newspapers, I would come across accounts of suicide. So I became interested in the topic and the way it was discussed and its legal ramifications. And that is sort of, that was the genesis of of this article. Terry, talk with listeners about the challenges you faced in the evidentiary base for this article. One of the challenges in studying suicide is just to think about what is suicide. In, throughout my work, both the piece in the JH and the other larger book project I'm working on, it's important to distinguish between intentional suicide. That's really what I'm concerned with. Even in the 17th century, when suicide was a felony, legal treatises would distinguish between those who committed suicide or killed themselves intentionally and others who did so as a product of mental disturbance, who were simply not of sound mind. But at the same time, that seems like a fairly clear distinction. Suicide, what actually is suicide, has always been a matter of, of some debate. In the earliest legal treatise on suicide, discussed it as, uh, and you had these exceptions for suicide, for instance, martyrs, Soldiers from suicide, even though they knew they were walking into death intentionally, uh, children, um, the insane, were exempt from suicide. But for everyone else in the early modern period, up through the era of the American Revolution, suicide was a felony. And that meant it carried fairly harsh penalties. If the head of a household who was male committed suicide, for instance, his personal property could be taken from his family. So families were penalized. Often suicides were denied burial in sacred grounds. Their bodies could be desecrated, dragged through the streets, buried at crossroads. So all of this means that there were fairly significant penalties attached to suicide and therefore very, very good reasons for hiding suicide when it did occur. That's one of the challenges. You just have to assume that like all crime, suicide is underreported. Then in the context of colonial America, it's important to recognize that what I was just describing are European and English attitudes and laws regarding suicide, but forcibly imported Africans, Native Americans have different understandings of suicide. And one of the things I write about in the article is that some ethnic Africans 
clearly support the idea of death before dishonor. So putting all those different belief systems into play is, is a challenge. Finding evidence of suicide is not a challenge necessarily by if you look at legal records as I had. And one of the things that surprised me was even as early in the in the 1700s, you can find coroner's juries performing inquests on slaves who killed themselves. And given that slaves had no legal personhood, this was this is this is sort of interesting to me that local juries would in fact not just defer to masters but gathered to determine the cause of death. And of course, then the problem with with those inquests is that suicide verdicts, of course, can mask other violence visited on the bodies of slaves. Deaths that were ruled accidental could also actually be suicide. So it's really, even when you have what seems to be legal evidence, it's difficult to know always how you can interpret it. So those were some of the challenges of the base of evidence that I work with. And I think it's for that reason that I cast my net really widely and looking not just at legal documents, but also bringing into play anti-slavery literature. I mean, nearly every ex-slave narrative uh, refers to suicide, either suicide ideation by the writer or they report incidents of suicide in the course of their narrative, the incidents of suicide by other slaves through the course of their narrative. Um, or they talk generally about suicide, as, for instance, Charles Ball and Frederick Douglass both do, about the problems of slave suicide in the South. So I re- bring in that evidence. And it's clear that ex-slave narratives, of course, are politically charged documents. That is, they have a political purpose, but they're at the same time, they're using uh, evidence of suicide to underscore the immorality of slavery. So legal documents, anti-slavery documents, and then and then the last sort of piece of evidence that I bring in is the memory of suicide by ex-slaves. Um, and these are drawn from WPA interviews that are done in the 1930s. And by and large, those inter- interviews do not refer to suicide. And the exception to that are the interviews that come from a collection called Drums and Shadows, which are interviews done by ex-slaves on the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands. One of the things I found interesting in your piece is when you write that you step outside of the resistance model that slaves committed suicide as a form of protest or resistance, which, as you point out, they clearly did. Uh, and, and you write about a, a more expansive way of envisioning this you call s- slave suicide ecology. Could you talk some about what you mean by that? Sure. One of the things, as I got more deeply into this project and began reading other accounts of slavery and I found that historians often discuss suicide briefly, sort of as this ultimate act of resistance. And I thought that there ought to be something more we could say about it. So my my sense was to look at this ecology, which I define as the material, psychological, and emotional circumstances that surround any given suicide. We don't, slaves don't leave us suicide notes. And that's something that uh, you can study in a free population, often, not always, certainly, but often. So I thought there, we, we ought to be able to look at the circumstances surrounding any given suicide and think about those as subjective 
responses to power. Think about those ecologies and slaves who choose suicide as a kind of a window into their worldview and their personal experiences of power. So that's that's where I think ecologies get gets me. And so it's I think we can all imagine forced kidnapping, rape, family separation as, you know, those are readily imaginable motives for suicide. But I wanted to try to parse those a little more carefully. So in my article I talk about the possibilities, the ethnic origins, physical pain. So I think about ecology as being this set of material psychological and emotional circumstances that surround any given suicide by a slave. And I try to parse it more carefully, thinking about religious beliefs, gendered entitlements, family and household composition, physical pain, immediate incarceration, that these are all can be part of the ecology that surrounds the suicide of any given slave. And that's I'm sort of interested in parsing those power relations more carefully. And that's why resistance does not, it, I, I sort of, that's how I step outside of the resistance model. So in, in a way then these uh, ecologies are, are really a set of meaningful contexts that allow you to, to nuance what any particular suicide might, might mean. Yes. And, and personalize yes. it in many ways, really. Yes. Yes, yeah, exactly. Talk about uh, the image that continues throughout your piece uh, about the flying African. Well, the flying African folklore emerges from the Georgia and the South Carolina Sea Islands. And uh, historians agree, or, or surmise is a better word, that that folklore had its roots in a collective suicide by a group of Igbo um, in 1803. And one of the things, interesting things about the flying African folklore is that it shows up um, in a variety of places, but one of the places it shows up is in the ex-slave interviews from the 1930s, particularly from those ex-slaves who are still in the region of the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands. And there is some variation in their accounts of the flying Africans. The basic story that they tell or that many of them tell is that Africans were fooled or tricked, brought to America, and they were put in the fields to work, and they flew away instead of working. The flying African folklore often captures some of the ecologies that, uh, of suicide that I talk about in my article. In different accounts, we'll note that these Africans who flew away couldn't speak to one another. And I, I think earlier in the article, given an account of uh, someone who reports that Africans who are imported and meet others who, who can't understand them resort to suicide. The flying African tales often talk about the power of brutality so that when the overseer comes with the whip, they fly away. And again, you can find suicide as a response to brutality. And, and even the flying Africans, the trauma of the Middle Passage, um, they talk about slaves who were fooled aboard a ship and they come here and they can't understand people and they don't understand the labor system or its brutality and they, in response, fly away. So, 
the idea is that that flying African folklore is somehow based on the 1803 collective suicide of Igbo off of the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands. But I think what's really fascinating is that we today don't really know what happened in 1803. The only written account that survives um, by a slave trader notes only that these Igbo were being shipped up. They had been landed in Savannah and were being shipped north. They'd been sold. They were on a small ship and they rose against their confinement. The, the captain and the sailors of the ship jumped off and drowned and the ship ran ashore and the Igbo took to the marsh. The original written document does not mention the word suicide, but it's clear that later, some later accounts um, and historians treat this as a collective suicide. And in fact, not the ex-slaves interviewed, but the interviewers, the people asking the questions in the 1930s, asked deliberately about Ebo's landing. And they asterisk their question and say, that's the place where Ebo landed in 1803 and marched into the water singing and deliberately drowned themselves. So they know the story in 1803. So the slaves, some of them agree with that story, uh, and it gets transformed not into walking into the water drowning, but it gets, gets transformed into Africans flying away. So, But what I think is interesting is there are competing versions of what happened at Igbo Landing in 1803. Was it an accident? Was it suicide? Did Africans fly away? The place named Ebo's Landing survives. Timothy Powell, um, an anthropologist at Penn, has written um, most extensively about it. But there is, as of yet, no marker. But it is not difficult to find this story in even tourist literature that's from Georgia today. Terry, talk with listeners about the changing interpretations by white folks of slave suicide. One of the things to understand is that Initially, you have a range of responses by empowered, let's just call them empowered onlookers, uh, masters, traders, sailors. They react to slave suicides sort of through bewilderment, and they, they want to control it. Obviously, I mean, that scene in the, the middle passage where they use the technologies, right, the nets to catch slaves who tried to jump overboard or the instruments used to forcibly feed slaves who are trying to starve themselves. But traders also often equated slave suicide with, with what they called stubbornness. And the interesting thing about the word stubbornness was that it resonates quite <laughs> widely in the early modern world so that criminals are described as stubborn, indentured servants who kill themselves are de- described as stubborn, and suicide itself is understood to be the act of a stubborn self. I mean, what the early modern point of view is that you submit to the lot that God has bestowed on you. To choose suicide is to fight against your God-ordained fate, if you will. Uh, and so suicide itself is seen as a, a sort of form of stubbornness, and that's why it has to be punished by felony. Over the course of the 18th century, there is a great debate about suicide. And in fact, I think historians are not sure where that debate really begins. You can certainly find it uh, in the work of Enlightenment philosophers. Other historians will point to the fact that even though suicide was a penalty, juries show 
an increasing lack of enthusiasm for punishing the suicide's families. So in other words, if the head of your household killed himself, a jury might ask you to hand over his personal property. Juries tended not to enforce those kinds of verdicts as the 18th century wore on. So we're not really sure where the change is coming from. Is it coming from below, from the peers and the neighbors of the suicide, or is it coming sort of from debates uh, among philosophers, religious authorities, and statesmen? It's unclear. But what does happen is that over the course of the 18th century, Suicide is seen less as an act for which you would express revulsion and more of an act for which you would express sympathy and tolerance. One of the ways to see this is in the wake of the American Revolution. Suicide is decriminalized part of, in, in many American jurisdictions, and part of that is this effort to make the common law conformable to Republican principles. And Thomas Jefferson himself argues that there, the state has no business penalizing suicide, that it's making suicide a, fel- a felony is a fruitless deterrent, uh, he, he argued. In the wake of the revolution, you see the decriminalization of suicide accompanies these changing attitudes that we ought to extend sympathy toward individuals who kill themselves rather than revulsion and that there's no reason to punish them. That debate continues on. I think, and even today we could say that suicide really still occupies this uneasy divide between the extent of individual conscience and private will and that sort of sphere of liberty over which the state has no control versus really what the public has a legitimate interest in. One of the interesting moves I, th- I saw was from uh, your description of stubbornness to uh, nostalgia, so that it seemed, if I'm reading right, that there was a sense among white folks th- that slaves were, in fact, missing something. They were longing for something, and they understood that there could be a kind of fatal nostalgia involved in suicide. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. That's part of the move. But of course, that's important to recognize that onlookers, and of course, this comes through in abolitionist literature, but also to a certain extent in the popular press, do begin expressing uh, the idea that of sympathy for slaves who commit suicide. And yet, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that if you are enslaved in the South, um, your master or your overseer most likely will decapitate or in some way desecrate the body of any suicidal slave to use that slave as an example or deterrent to others. So, right, you, you do see attitudes changing over the course of of the 18th century, we move away from the idea that slaves are committing suicide out of stubbornness and there's an expression of more sympathy or one might even say understanding for the act, certainly in abolitionist literature and in the popular press. And yet masters and overseers don't necessarily share in that. I think it's just important to remember that. Yes. That we can find evidence that masters or overseers will desecrate the bodies of suicidal slaves up until the Civil War. Terry, I was fascinated in your piece when you write, such themes, natural rights, the entitlement of the self, and the extent of individual liberty 
were central to the cultural and political debates that marked the emergence of the modern era. And uh, these discussions about these enduring issues uh, were also being talked about with regard to slave suicide, so that, that your piece, while focused on suicide, really does open out onto these enduring issues, doesn't it? Yes, I think it does. I mean, one of the the recurring phrases in ex-slave narratives and, and in abolitionist literature is the idea that slaves, too, have the right to choose between liberty and death, right? That this is a part of a right that, that accrues to a political subject. And I think, as I point out in the article, when John Locke is trying to illustrate what it means to be free from arbitrary power, and this for him is he's trying to illustrate what a natural right is, he uses the idea of a slave who, he says, if a slave finds that the hardship of slavery outweighs the value of his life, then it is within the slave's power. It is therefore the slave's natural right to draw on himself the death he desires. And I found that fascinating. And as I said, abolitionists will pick up this theme using the idea that slaves have a right to choose death. In one of the tracts, the Thomas Day's The Dying Negro, that was originally published in 1773, uh, it is a poem. What's interesting about that is you have a slave who the heavens are opening and a slave who's saying to God, I'm giving you back this unpolluted blood, right? I'm, I'm killing myself and I'm giving you back this unpolluted blood. And that too is a very modern idea, the, the idea that a suicide Right, we, we go back to the early modern era when suicides could not be buried in sacred ground. Right, would have been buried at a crossroads or um, in some in some way to 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 say I'm giving you God back this blood and it's unpolluted suggests I mean that there's been a revolution in consciousness. The idea that the suicide, in fact, rather than being abhorrent, is part of the slaves natural right. It's his natural liberty to choose that over a corrupt and immoral system of domination. Finally, Terry, talk about slavery suicide as a form of resistance. Well, I think the way I write about it in this particular article is that you have uh, the story of the Igbo, which I have talked about, and you also have other incidents. I give a couple of examples from Virginia where it seems to me that what's happening is that slaves kill themselves, and all of the other evidence suggests that they do so when a planned collective revolt has failed in some way. There are other details associated with the, the suicide that suggest that there was a, a, a larger act of resistance going on. And then the idea of revolutionary suicide is the sense that one would fight oppression that might lead you to despair rather than to accept a system of domination. And that, that sort of, that's Huey Newton's uh, definition, um, not mine. But that is definitely part of the history of suicide. I mean, I know historians are wary of taking a, a sort of modern definition like Newton's and uh, projecting it back on the past, but it seems to me in some incidents we, we see that. Slaves who simply refuse to get up, refuse to do, to refuse to work, 
arguably are acting in a way that is fighting oppression, and they know that they're risking death uh, by doing so. So co- both collectively and individually, yes, I think you can construe suicide uh, in that sense that it is an act meant to deflect forces of domination. Yes, thank you. And finally, my second finally, um, you've mentioned that, that this piece was part of a larger book project. Can you say a little bit about this larger project? Um, my larger project is a study of suicide in early America um, from about 1630 to about 1840. Part of what I'm interested in is looking at suicide among a wide swath of early Americans, suicide in the context and sometimes as a product of colonization. But I'm also interested in looking at the modernization of suicide in the United States. So to go from the viewpoints brought in by English and European colonizers, right, that suicide is a sin and a felony, and to to sort of put that in dialogue with the attitudes brought in by forcibly emigrated Africans, um, Native Americans who were here, and then to watch what happens to all those attitudes as we move through the 18th century and approach the revolution. And then finally, I think one of the things I want to do in my project is to think about how suicide was used as, and particularly in the abolitionist movement, as a potent political symbol. And and I think a very effective political symbol of everything that was wrong with slavery. So it is a it is both a study. I look at actual suicides. Uh, I look at legal, religious, uh, and philosophical changes with regard to attitudes towards suicide. And I also look at suicide as a political image that we see especially well in the abolitionist movement. Terry, thank you. It's a fascinating project, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast with us. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the journal of record in American history. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org, and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Join us in August for our next program. If you have comments or suggestions, please email us at jahcast at oah.org.